Thanks, Pete. Uh, life is full of risks, isn't it? Some people find that exciting. Go risk, lean over the edge of cliffs, drive fast cars, have a go at extreme sports, take on big waves like on the screen there. Prefer a surfboard than a lifeboat, but uh, life, uh, lighthouse. Uh, but for others, uh, all the risks in life is kind of crippling and kind of terrifying. And they do all they can to control and contain all the irregularities and uh, uncertainties of life. And I think most of us are somewhere in the middle, aren't we? Um, we live in a country and at a time in history when so much of a working life, it seems, is, is taken up with WHS. Yeah? Oh, so much of it. And, and safety procedures and risk evaluation forms and, and so on and so on. That's just the norm. But for all the precautions, accidents still happen. People still get hurt. Lives still get lost. You only have to look at the, uh, the stats from our New South Wales roads to see that that's true. But imagine if we could control somehow uh, all the, the variables in life uh, so that we're guaranteed safety and security in life. You know, like the superhero in the action movie who well, has all these near misses but always makes it through to the end somehow. Imagine if we could somehow control things in a way that guaranteed that we made it through to the end of not just life, but made it through safely to eternal life. To be 100% certain that when we died, we'd go straight to heaven to be with God. Now, that'd be something, wouldn't it? Well, in this passage today, John says we can be that certain. 100%. There's lots of things we can't know in life. But where we'll be for eternity isn't one of them, according to John. So as we look at uh, God's word this morning, let's ask that he'll help us see it, believe it, and live by it. Let's pray. Loving Father, thank you for the great comfort your word brings to our troubled hearts and minds. So please help us to build our lives on your truth as we see it here before us today. Just like that lighthouse, so that we can stand firm through all the storms of life. In Jesus' name, amen. One of the great hallmarks of the Christian faith is the robust assurance we have in our salvation. Our certainty is based not on our own character or achievements, but entirely on Jesus, his perfect life and sacrificial death on the cross for our sins and his resurrection that confirmed and validated every claim and promise he made. And next week we're going to be spending the whole morning just looking at what the resurrection means for our lives. So I hope, um, hope you're around. Um, this assurance is a deep and wonderful confidence and it remains steady despite our circumstances, whether they're good or they're bad. It's resilient against persecution and sickness and hardship. In fact, rather than being choked by opposition and difficulty, it usually flourishes and thrives. Such steadfast security in the promises of God 
is the overriding purpose of John's whole letter that we've been working through. You can see it there in verse 13 as he begins his conclusion that we're looking at today. Verse 13, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God. Why? So that you may know that you have eternal life. So friends, let me just ask you quite frankly, do you know that you have eternal life? Are you completely certain, absolutely sure? If not, would you like to be? Here in this verse, God is reminding us that we can know for certain. Now, it's a certainty that is unique to the Christian faith because it rests entirely on Jesus Christ, not on ourselves. And it's a theme that's popped up every week in our journey through uh, 1 John because the whole letter is infused with it. John began by emphasising that he's a reliable witness because he saw Jesus, he heard Jesus, he touched Jesus. So because of that, we can have confidence in the message that he writes. Well, what's his message? Chapter 1, that God forgives and purifies all who confess their sins to him. Chapter 2, that Jesus rescues us from the power and penalty of sin because of his death for us on the cross. Chapter 3, God's love for us. Remember that wonderful verse, the love that God has lavished on us? God's love for us is at the very heart of our certainty. He holds on to us. In chapter 4, John also made it clear that our love for God and for our fellow believers is good evidence that our faith in God is real. And that gives us confidence on the day of judgment. And here in chapter 5, our last week in 1 John, he's telling us again, you can know that you have eternal life. So can I urge you, if you are not sure about eternal life, if you're not sure where you stand with God, can I encourage you, talk to someone before you leave here today because God wants us to be sure. There's no need to have any shadow of doubt in our head or no wavering in our hearts. Am I in? Am I out? God wants us to know for sure. When we are sure... We approach God with confidence, not confidence in ourselves, but confidence in Jesus, as we bring our needs to him in prayer. You can see it in verse 14. This is the confidence we have in approaching God. You see, trust in God for eternal life is seen by trust in God for the concerns in our present life. The two go together. And God, our Heavenly Father, loves, he just delights to hear the prayers of us, his children, as we talk to him in daily prayer. This is the confidence we have in approaching God, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we ask us, and if we know he hears us, whatever we ask, we know that we have what we asked of him. That's verse 14 and 15. And can I say, yes, it does say anything. And yes, it does say, whatever we ask. And yes, verse 15 does say, we have 
what we asked of him. It sounds too good to be true, doesn't it? Guaranteed answers to our prayers. Now, some of you are probably sitting there thinking, okay, there must be a catch here. Because I know that I have prayed some prayers and they weren't answered. I didn't get what I asked for. What's going on? What is God promising here? How does it work? Well, some uh, Bible commentators try to redefine it and narrow it down, you know, appealing to the context so that it only refers to asking for eternal life. In other words, if you ask God to forgive your sins because you're trusting in Jesus, uh, he'll answer that prayer with a definite, yes, that's guaranteed. And, And that is guaranteed. That is true. But there's a lot more in view here. And it comes down to punctuation. Many years ago, one of my daughters came home from school with a little clipping. I think it was my mother that might have given it to her. But anyway. <laughs> do you like that? Do I need to explain it? I, I'd, prefer, I'd prefer the second line. I don't want to eat grandma. <laughs> Look carefully at verse 14. What does it say? Now, just as we do this, I'm conscious that, I think it was last week, John said there was no punctuation in the original Greek. The punctuation is in the way the words are actually spelt. It, yeah, it's a bit different to our, our um, English words. And you can read, read the way the words are written, where the emphasis should be and where the breaks should be. Uh, in English, we put punctuation in to help us do all that. Um, So let's look at verse 14 carefully. It it does not say this. If we ask anything, comma, according to his will, he hears us. Well, that turns the will of God into a blank check guarantee that that we will get whatever we ask for. Now, that's not biblical prayer. Rather, it says, if we ask anything according to his will, comma, he hears us. In other words, the will of God is the scope or or, or boundaries inside which our prayers are answered with a yes. It's like, you know, down the beach, you got the flags up. Yes is between the flags, God's will. No's outside the flags. For any Greek geeks here today, that's what we used to call them at college, um, according to his will is a conditional clause in that sentence. It is the condition or the rule by which our prayers are answered positively. So it begs the question, how do we discover the will of God? How can we know? How can we pray with this kind of confidence? Well, we need to get to know God personally, don't we? We actually need to get to know him. We need a living relationship. That's how I've got to know my dear wife's will (laughs) over the years. Still working on it. But we need to actually get to know God personally. Well, how do we do that? We get to know the will of God, the heart of God, the character of God through the word of God. We can only be sure of the will of God when we read it in the word that is given us. And the will of God will never contradict the word of God. 
So it's perilous to ignore the word of God. And our prayers will be powerless if we ignore the word of God. Friends, how much do we seek God through regular reading of his word? How much do we consciously allow God's word to shape the way we pray? You see, the alternative is to to pray according to our will or, or perhaps the will of whatever idol we've placed in Jesus' spot in our hearts. Or worse, to not pray at all. Jeremiah 17 verse 9 says, The heart is deceitful above all things. See, if our mind is not constantly renewed by the word of God, it's all too easy to be led astray by our wayward hearts. And then we'll probably find ourselves praying according to our own sinful and selfish motives. No matter how well we try to disguise them, instead of the perfect will of God. And if we pray in that kind of selfish way, our prayers will not be answered. Here, John says, pray according to God's will, and the answer is yes. That said, even with the guidance of God's word, we do not always know what his will is. That's why Jesus taught his disciples to pray, your kingdom Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And when we pray a prayer like that, we're acknowledging that we are not all knowing. We don't have a knowledge of everything. We can't see all the variables and how things should work out. But you can, Lord. May your will be done. And when we pray like that, we have the joyful assurance that his will, whether we understand it or not, will be done as we ask for it. That's the way he has ordained it. Now, sometimes our will is clearly not God's will. What then? There's a tension there, isn't there, sometimes? Again, Jesus is our example. John was there. John, who wrote this letter, was there in the garden just before the arrest of Jesus. As Jesus poured out his his, uh, heart in fervent prayer, Father, take this cup from me, this, this cup of suffering and death on the cross. His sweat was like drops of blood. And yet what did he say? His highest desire was the Father's will, not his own. Not my will, but yours be done. It's a great way to finish any prayer, isn't it? When we pray with that same confidence in the Father's good and perfect will and with that same abandonment of personal comfort, and gain. Verse 15 here says, We have what we asked from him. It may not be what we want in our human limitations, what we would like, but it will be what is best for God's kingdom and for our ultimate good. Now, this kind of prayer is a characteristic of anyone 
who believes that God is sovereign, that he's in control, that God is powerful. He can answer prayer, that God is good. He delights to answer prayer and that God is devoted to the genuine well-being of his children. You see, God can make a difference in people and events that we have absolutely no control over, that we're powerless to have any impact upon. So friends, pray, pray, pray. And then John uh, goes on to apply his teaching on prayer to the issue of sin in the life of a fellow believer. And this comes as a bit of a surprise because all the way through his letter, there's an underlying assumption that the children of God will be characterized by active obedience to God rather than chronic rebellion against him. Nevertheless, we all do struggle with sin in different ways. And John recognises that prayer is a vital part of our restoration. Now, of course, we've got to check that there's no log in our own eye first. Don't you love pictures like that? I thought I'd bring a bit of forward to myself this morning, but um, decided against it. Uh, but having checked our own eye and, uh, and uh, then removed it if necessary, if there's something there, then we need to love others enough to address the speck in, in their eye. And here John is emphasising the need to pray for them. It's exactly what James says in 5.16 as well. Confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. And here's the good news. Throughout this letter... John has already given us so many ideas for how we can pray according to God's will for a fellow believer who's struggling with sin. Think back on some of the things we've looked at. Chapter 1, verses 8 and 9. We pray for them that they'll confess their sins uh, and that they will know in their heart that they are forgiven and that God is purifying them. We can pray that they will trust in Christ as their mediator and the atoning sacrifice for their sins. That was in chapter 2. A bit later in chapter 2, we can pray that their sense of guilt will be replaced by firm confidence in God's complete forgiveness. And at the start of chapter 3, that they will know that they are God's child, loved by him dearly. We can pray that God's spirit will strengthen them to resist sin, the world and the devil. We saw that in chapter 2 as well. Over in chapter 4, we missed this bit, but we can pray that God would assure them of his love and help them to love others just as he loves us. And on and on. I mean, there's so many things we could pick up. But you see what we're doing there? We're praying by allowing God's word to give shape to our prayers, allowing God's word to show us what to pray and how to pray. Now, before I leave those couple of verses, I do want to clarify what John means by the sin that leads to death. Did you notice it there? You ever worried, oh, have I, have I committed the unforgivable sin or have I committed a sin that leads to death? You don't want to do that. So let me just tell you what it is. John, uh, John said in chapter 2, verse 2, that Jesus died for all. 
But John also recognised, as did Jesus in his teaching, that not all would be saved. So the sin that leads to death is rejecting Jesus' death as payment for your sin. Rejecting him as God's son, our only hope of salvation. If you look back at verse 12, just before what was read, verse 12 says this, Whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. The person who has not put their trust in Jesus is still spiritually dead. They are not yet saved. Now, John's not prohibiting prayer for unbelievers. He's not saying we can't pray for them, but he is indicating a higher priority, I think, here. They need to hear the gospel. We need to remind them, tell them of the good news of how they can be saved. In the last few verses, John comes back to some of his favourite themes. They just keep on coming up, uh, round and round, like uh, good good friends in the front door of our homes, I hope. Uh, In verses 18 to 20, he says that the children of God do not willfully continue in sin. He says the one who was born of God, that's Jesus, the one who's born of God, keeps us safe and the evil one cannot harm them. In other words, the devil cannot cause you to lose your salvation. That's good, isn't it? I mean, we're seeing a number of times throughout John that the devil is a real force of evil, a real being against God's people. Powerful, but absolutely nothing compared to Jesus. We're secure in his grasp. The good news that we see there is is because the next verse says, uh, John says that the whole world, the whole world, meaning all of humanity, is under the devil's control. That's a pretty strong phrase, isn't it? Um, Paul put it like this. He said everyone's a slave to sin. Jesus used the phrase, children of the devil. But remember what Jesus came to do back in 1 John 3 verse 8, just a couple of chapters earlier, says the reason Jesus came was to destroy the devil's work. Only he saves us from the power of sin and the grip of Satan. God's children are under the control of Jesus, not the devil. And in verse 20, as he comes to a close, that theme of assurance is there again. We know. We are in him who is true. And then if it was Paul or someone like that, he'd sign off with something like, the grace of the Lord Jesus be with your spirit. Amen. Or something like that. What does John do? Dear children, keep yourselves from idols. It just seems so random, doesn't it? Like, where on earth did that come from? Um, What are you taught at school? When you're writing essays, don't introduce a new idea into your conclusion. John missed that lesson. This is the first time in the whole letter he has mentioned idols. Or is it? What's an idol? Isn't an idol anything we put in God's rightful place in our hearts? Now, sometimes idols are just good things, good gifts of God that we turn into God things in our hearts. 
Sometimes idols are sinful things that have no place at all in our hearts. Either way, John is saying as he closes that we must not have anything other than Jesus as Lord of all in our hearts. Don't be led astray. Don't be deceived. Keep yourself from false gods and sinful beliefs and behaviours that so often go along with them. Keep yourselves from idols. It's not so random after all, is it? In fact, it's quite a fitting way to end. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that by believing in your Son, Jesus Christ, we can know that we have eternal life. Thank you that he gives us confidence to approach you in prayer. Help us to pray for one another regularly and to continue to live as your children. Strengthen us by your Holy Spirit to turn from sin, to resist the devil and all worldly temptations, and to cling to Christ in whom our hope of eternal life is secure. In his wonderful name we pray. Amen.